I'd like if you would to uh, turn back to the passage we read in uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, which you'll find on page 1048 in the uh, Church Bibles. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in the seven years. They were the words of Mark Twain. And it seems that difficult relationships between parents and their children are nothing new. The passage we have uh, in front of us this evening, at least the second half of it, uh, predates Mark Twain by almost 2,000 years. And yet at first reading, it seems to deal with a similar theme, doesn't it? The story of the prodigal son is uh, well known to us and very familiar. On the face of it charts the uh, disintegration of the son's relationship with his father. It recounts the, his experiences and reflections in a far land. And then we read of this subsequent reconciliation between the son and his father. But this is a parable, isn't it? And uh, by its means, the Lord Jesus, who recounted it, provides us with a tool to better understand spiritual truths. Christ recounted the, uh, the parable of the lost son along with the two others that we read just before that, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, in response to the murmurings of the Pharisees and the scribes that we read of in verse 2 at the beginning of that chapter. Do you see that? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered because Jesus was uh, gathering and welcoming tax collectors and sinners, and they muttered, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so these three parables are a response of Christ to those murmurings of the Pharisees and scribes. Their accusation was that he was receiving and eating with sinners, and that observation was made out of scorn, given their status as religious leaders in the community. The parable of the prodigal son is just one part of Jesus' answer to his accusers. And uh, I hope we'll spend a few minutes this evening looking at this well-known passage. And we look at it by looking in turn at the two characters that we read about, the younger son in verses 11 through to 20, and then secondly uh, about the father, and we read of him in verses 20 to 24. So let's look first then at the son, the son who came to his senses. And this passage starts or opens in verse 12 with this scene of the younger son uh, making a demand of his father. Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. Now we're not told much about the background to this event. What we know is that uh, this man has two sons. And although Christ's narrative in the parable is quite limited, when we review the account of the younger son's life and actions, 
both in these verses and also as the older son uh, recounts it later on in verse 30, we begin to see traits that are perhaps all too familiar, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, as we see around us. And the family seemed to be prosperous and well provided for. And it appears that the younger son takes his share of the, the portion of the, of the father's wealth without any obvious difficulty. The father's character is portrayed here as one who is kind, benevolent, generous in his dealings with his sons. And so it's against this comfortable and stable environment that the demand of the younger son beats in. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. His demand, doesn't it, resonates with self-interest. It's the word me that is at the centre of his demand. Now, under Jewish law, the younger son would have been entitled to a share of his father's estate. There were rules that uh, outlined how that should be calculated. But ordinarily, of course, he'd have had to wait until time had taken its course. The narrative doesn't disclose what lay behind his impatience. But what's clear is that the younger son took no delight in being under his father's roof. The character of the father, the benevolence, the kindness, the tenderness uh, appears to have no attraction to him. No sooner had he received his inheritance than he removes himself straight away from the restraining influence of his father. We're told, aren't we, that he goes to a far country, far away from the father as is possible. His father is out of sight, out of mind, out of any form of restraint. And suppressing his conscience in this way, he was at liberty to indulge his every woman passion. Uh, we're told in uh, the New International Version here that he, he squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, in other versions, we, we know the term prodigal living, reckless living. Now, we don't know the details of it, but uh, his lifestyle <coughs> clearly was reckless, and there are a few hints later in the passage. And in, in verse 30, when the, the older son recounts, uh, it leaves little to the imagination. He squanders his property with prostitutes. It's an entirely hedonistic lifestyle and philosophy that he has. Life for this young man was motivated by his own self-gratification and no other. And isn't that a picture of how sin runs riot in our own lives before coming to faith in Christ? Isn't this the very essence of sin? It's self-interest, isn't it? The Bible tells us that we were made for a purpose, to serve and glorify our maker. And yet, uh, for us as natural men, that's the last thing that is on our minds. The concept of living our lives in fellowship with God simply has no attraction whatsoever. Having the Lord share our daily experiences is the last thing we would want to do. If you meet colleagues or clients for coffee and the conversation unfolds, it doesn't take long, does it, 
before the conversation reveals what drives people today. Our natural tendencies are to concentrate all our time and energy on other goals than serving Christ. Some strive in building a career. Others set themselves financial goals. Some look to achieve great feats or sporting prowess. While for others, they relish in life's experiences, travelling here and there and uh, adventure. But whatever the particular agenda that drives an individual, there is one common theme. It's a life built around personal objectives. But there's nothing new under the sun. Back in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 53, the prophet tells us, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to what? To his own way. Isn't this true for the world we live in today? Everyone has his own way in life. We have individual plans and individual aspirations. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that life coaches and personal trainers are so popular. The world we live in is preoccupied with fulfilling personal goals and ambitions. But such a philosophy will never satisfy. And we read in verse 14 that after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country and he began to be in need. He began to want Isaiah, the prophet again, spoke of men hewing out for themselves cisterns which are broken. They don't hold any water. They cannot satisfy. And so it was for this young man. He put all his hopes and his energy in things which did not satisfy. His anticipated life of pleasure and of satisfaction. This all turned out to be a life of want and emptiness. As his money ran out, he was abandoned by those around him. And as he began to suffer hunger, he resolved to uh, uh, save his situation through his own efforts, hiring himself out as a farm labourer to a citizen of that country. Deserted by everyone, and within his resources extinguished, he was reduced to tending pigs in the field. And for the Jewish audience, who were listening to Christ as he recounted this parable, there could have been no dramatic description of the depths to which this young man had descended. Because the pigs, the swine, were an unclean animal. And nothing could have been more degrading than for him to have been reduced to feeding them. And isn't this the experience of all too many? We set out with the greatest of plans. We aspire that whatever, to to achieve whatever we have set our hearts on in life. It may not be riotous living. We may have much more respectable, respectable aspirations. But material comfort, pursuit of a career, children that we can be proud of, All of these aspirations ultimately will disappoint if God is not at the centre of them. So we read here of a young man who was left perishing with hunger. 
He had no hope of escape. Isn't that the danger of life without God, that it's equally hopeless? No matter how strong our bravado, underneath, underneath that external veneer of happiness for so many people, there is a sense of unease. Where will it lead? What lies at the end? Whatever satisfaction we may set our heart on will only be for the short term. And it will come to an end. Last weekend we had um, Rebecca's uh, mother with us for her 80th birthday. And as various people came to visit, they brought uh, copious quantities of flowers. And so the, the house was full of these blooms. And it looked very spectacular. But as the week has worn on, a few petals have dropped. The leaves have begun to, dr- to dry. They're still hanging in there. But another week will go by and the blooms will be no more. So even the most wonderful of spectacles will come to an end. And we then have to ask, what then? We read in Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 15, that the way of the unfaithful is hard. And it is, this is true. Because for people who do not trust in God, the way is hard. Because ultimately, it has no enduring purpose. And so we come to this turning point in the man's life. There he was, laboring with the pigs in the field, no one giving him anything. And we read these dramatic words in verse 17, that he came to his senses. What a dramatic difference this made. And we can understand something of the change that came about with him by looking at the second question, of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now I'm going to paraphrase it slightly, but the question says this. What do you need to know in order to live and die happily? And the point where this young man came to his senses was the point at which he realised the answer to that question. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that there are three things that we need to know in order to answer that question. And the first is to know the greatness of my sin and misery. See, the prodigal didn't just realize at that point that he was dying of hunger. He'd felt that hunger for days whilst working with the pigs. The turning point for the young man was that he realized this was the result of his own sin. We see that in verse 17, don't we, where he he begins to recount out or think about what he will say to his father, and he says, I will go back to him and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So the young man had a recognition that he had sinned, sinned against God. 
It was an acknowledgement by the son that he was in a desperate and perilous state, but it was of his own making, and that he alone was responsible for it. He knew the greatness of his sin and misery. But the second thing that the Heidelberg Catechism says we need to know if we are to live and die happily is that we need to know how we can be redeemed from all our sin and misery. So you see, the prodigal son, the young man, didn't just wallow in his despair. He realized that he needed help. And after he realized this, he turned to the only place where he could find help, which was to ret- he resolved to return to his father. And that's important because not all who fear, feel the despair of their sin actually cry out for help in their time of need. If you think about Judas after he had... Um, uh, after he'd um, uh, revealed Christ, he, he, you remember that he, uh, he despaired of his sin after he had betrayed Jesus. But we read that Judas found no comfort in this conviction of sin. So, if you do have your, a sense of your sin... Do not rest until you have found out how you may be redeemed from that misery. And the answer is given by Jesus when he said, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the Heidelberg Catechism says, firstly, that we need to know the greatness of our sin and misery. Secondly, that we need to know how we may be redeemed from our sin and misery. And thirdly, If we are to live and die happily, it says we need to know how we are to be thankful to God for such a deliverance. In other words, we need to do something about the knowledge that is referred to in the first two answers. Simply acknowledging the truth that we're sinners and simply acknowledging our need of helping Christ is not a change of heart. Conviction is not the same as conversion. And simply resolving to return to the Father is not repentant. J.C. Ryle says this, Action is the very life of repentance unto salvation. Feelings and tears and remorse and wishes And resolutions are all useless until they are accompanied by action and a change of life. And so we find with this young man in verse 20, the wonderful reality that having recognized the greatness of his sin and having realized that the only means of his escape from his predicament was to return confessing his sin. We read that he arose, got up, and went to his father. So let's look look now then at the father who 
who he found, the father who rejoiced over his son. The danger of a parable is that it's not a complete picture of the gospel. And there's a danger that this story leaves you with the impression that God merely responds to sinners who come to him. The son returned to the father. The father um, responded, as it were, to the, the, the son's return. But if we read the Bible, we see that that is, a, that is a, a distortion of the truth. And the other two parables in this section that we read earlier, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, they teach clearly that it is God who comes seeking the lost Love, you see, is an active love. The shepherd didn't sit bewailing his lost sheep. The woman didn't sit in her house bewailing her lost coin. So our Lord did not sit in heaven bewailing lost sinners. In verse 4, we see that God is portrayed as a shepherd who scours the countryside until he finds the one sheep which is lost. And again, in, in verse 8, we see that the, the woman who has lost the coin, with the woman who's lost the coin, that God is portrayed as diligently going to great lengths to find that one lost coin. And in both cases, then, we're shown that it is the Father who takes the initiative. And the lengths taken by our Heavenly Father to seek the lost can no more clearly be demonstrated than on Calvary. When the cry went up from the Lord Jesus on the cross to his father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the answer to that was that the father's face was turned away from Jesus, his only son, so that his face could be turned towards us, his prodigal children. God has what is termed an antecedent love, a love that goes before any affection or desire that we may have for him. In the first epistle of John 4.10, we're told, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And then in verse 19 of the same chapter, we're told, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So we're told here in verse 20, as the, the young man having got up and gone to his father, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion on him. Doesn't this give some insight into the mind of the father in the intervening weeks, months, years that had passed while the son was away? The father had been waiting for him, longing for him, looking out for him. The father had loved the son all through this period of absence. He had compassion on the son, not because the son had chosen to return, but simply because he was his father. He had set his love upon him. And so too with us. God the Father doesn't love us because we try to live the Christian life or go to church or believe. No, our Heavenly Father loves his people out of sheer benevolence because he delights to do so. 
and because he has set his covenant love upon us. Do you see how the Father then welcomes the Son home again? I don't know if you've ever had to do a, a talk. Perhaps you've thought about what you were going to say and you mull it over in your mind, a presentation or something like that. Uh, and as the, uh, the hours go by leading up to the time when you give your presentation, you, you think about it, you think about what you're going to say, you think about what the reaction is going to be of the audience. And it's a bit like this, this here, isn't it? Because back in, um, uh, back in verse 17, this young man has worked out what he's going to say as a speech to his father when he gets back home. Sorry, verse 18. It says, this is what I shall say. I shall say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And you can imagine, can't you, uh, making his way back home, tossing it over in his mind, preparing himself for this um, uncertain encounter with his father. What will the father's reaction be? He comes ready to seek a position as a hired servant. But you see what happens in verses 21 and 22. When he comes to deliver his speech, he only gets halfway through it, doesn't he? He confesses his sin. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. And immediately, the father interrupts his speech. He no longer has to ask to be a hired servant. The father doesn't give him the opportunity. The father's joy has cut him off. Just as we see back in verse 6, the shepherd is filled with joy at having found his lost sheep. And... um, In uh, verse 9, when the woman finds the lost coin, she's overjoyed with the fact that she'd recovered it and calls in her neighbours. So the uh, the father is filled with joy here in verse 22 and uh, interrupts the the young man in full flow. And these verses together give us just a glimpse of the joy in heaven that follows the conversion of everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable insight, isn't it, into how God regards us if we repent. Those of you who are parents may be familiar with the experience of a child getting themselves into trouble. Uh, We worry We're concerned. And then uh, when the child is found or escapes the particular predicament, we're filled with relief. But when we, we, when we, when we grab hold of the child, we, we have a mix of emotions. There's a, there's relief, but there's also remonstration so often as well, isn't there? How could you have done that? We say, don't do that again. But not so here with the prodigal son when he returns to the father. 
There's no reference, is there, to what has passed. There's no gentle rebuke. There's no admonition at what has taken place. The father is filled with joy that he does not retain any anger. In Micah 7.18, we are told, or the question is asked, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He, that's God, does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because our God delights in mercy. So the young man is welcomed back and he's afforded all the honours of sonship. We read of that, don't we, in verse 22. The the robe is put on him, the, the ring, the sandals, all the accoutrements of being the father's son. The father's compassion is so great that there isn't the slightest shadow of anything that has gone before. The response of the father is to rejoice at the penitent son's return. And the other two parables that we've read in this section make it clear that God rejoices at the return of even one sinner. And here in verse 24, it's, uh, it's described in the bluntest of terms, isn't it? The father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Isn't this an astonishing response from the sovereign God, the creator of the universe? The one who made all things out of nothing with a mere word and who now sustains his creation minute by minute the one who grants us every breath that we breathe. Isn't this a remarkable reaction from the one who is perfectly holy, the one who is eternal, and before whom even the angels are worshipping, crying, holy, holy, holy. That God, our God, not only welcomes back sinners who repent, but he rejoices at the repentance of each and every one. Each and every one of these rebels who had previously defied him. What can we learn in conclusion from this passage this evening? In some ways, the key truth was not uttered by Jesus at all but was uttered by the Pharisees back in verse 2. For the Pharisees and scribes said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now they may have been saying that to pawn scorn on Christ, but they couldn't have spoken a truer word. This was the whole point of Christ's office, or is the whole point of Christ's office as Redeemer, to receive sinners. And having received them, Christ pardons them. He sanctifies them. He keeps them. And then he will present them on that day in heaven before his heavenly Father. So for those of us who are believers, there is encouragement in this passage. The Christian life can be tough at times. 
and it's easy to become discouraged. If our hands hang heavy at times, if our spirit grows a bit weary through the battles we have with sin and temptation and the cares of the world day by day, then think on your heavenly Father who has compassion on you. And think also that he is the one who has rejoiced individually at your repentance. What greater assurance can we have that our Lord will provide for our individual needs through our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, than that? But if you're not a Christian this evening, this passage can also be an encouragement to you. For if you recognise your need of help and realise this can only be found in Christ, then remember that it is the Lord Jesus who does what? He receives sinners and eats with them. That's what he does. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. To take this parable as an encouragement to trust in him, you cannot do anything to come back to God. But Christ looks out while we were yet afar off and he will come to us to embrace us, to kiss us and to welcome us and restore us as his sons. And consider this, that if we trust in Christ, then there will be great rejoicing in heaven at your repentance if you believe. We're going to uh, respond to the passage we just read by